I think part of uh, my interest in bats really stems back to that, that field course uh, I did as an undergrad. That whole experience, seeing professors totally excited about what they were doing, that was infectious to me and got me really interested in field biology. Meet Dr. Craig Willis, professor of biology at the University of Winnipeg. Dr. Willis studies the ecology, behavior, physiology, and conservation of wild mammals. But he's really known for researching one wild mammal in particular, bats. I keep coming back to bats because they do so many things we don't understand. They're so weird and unusual in so many ways. And to me, that's just creates an exciting challenge as a biologist. Over the past decade, millions of hibernating bats across Eastern North America have died from a fungal disease called white nose syndrome, causing the fastest population decline of wild mammals ever recorded. Through their research, Dr. Willis and the Bat Lab research team at the University of Winnipeg have been trying to slow the spread of this disease, help affected bats survive, and offer solutions towards the managing of wildlife diseases. On this episode, the research question is, how do we stop the spread of white nose syndrome in bats? From the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center, you're listening to Research Question, amplifying the impact of discovery from the researchers of the University of Winnipeg. Bats. They're among the most widespread mammals in the world. In recent years, bats have received a lot of attention for something outside their portrayal in popular culture. Whether it be bloodthirsty vampires turning into bats or rich vigilantes using a bat's likeness to terrify criminals, bats get a sinister rap for how they look when it's their real-life virus hosting abilities that should concern us. Uh, some of you may remember this mediocre to maybe okay film called Contagion starring Gwyneth Paltrow as patient uh, zero. Uh, and That's Dr. Uh, Craig Willis speaking from a TEDx talk he gave in 2017 entitled, Why Should We Care About Wildlife Disease? In it, Willis uses the 2011 Hollywood blockbuster Contagion as a way to explain why it's so crucial that we mitigate the spread of wildlife diseases through conservation. In the talk, Willis lays out why the destruction and contamination of bat habitats is not only killing bats, but also contributing to global pandemics. But it's based on a real disease that jumped from wild animals to livestock and then to people. It didn't spread nearly as easily as the disease in this movie, uh, but many, many other viral pathogens of wildlife are a concern and most emerging infectious diseases of people come from wild animals. Wuhan outbreak is one of six outbreaks caused by bat-borne viruses in the last 26 years. This is something that Chinese virologists have been warning the world about for some time after they traced the natural reservoir of SARS coronavirus to Chinese horseshoe bats in 2013. Research published in the journal Nature by virologists at the Chinese Academy of Sciences Institute called for an increased number of programs and policies that would help mitigate the risk of global pandemics. However, this did not stop the current pandemic. COVID-19 is the most significant public health event in recent history, leading to a global recession, sending millions of people into quarantine, and leading to the deaths of thousands of people. The source of the current coronavirus is believed to be a market in Wuhan, China. It's still not known how the emerging disease jumped from wildlife to humans because bats were not sold at the market. Scientists have surmised, however, that bats could have infected live chickens or other animals sold there. 
When it comes to pandemics, scientists believe that they're a combination of things that are resulting in an increased risk of outbreaks beginning with the health of bats. If a bat is a host to a virus, and that bat is put under stress, its immune system is thrown off balance. This can cause the bat to shed even more of a virus through bodily fluids that can infect other animals. With growing human populations increasingly encroaching on bat habitats, with changes in land use, with wildlife and livestock transported and sold sometimes in close proximity, and with an increase in both domestic and international travel and trade, disease outbreaks of a pandemic scale are a shocking new reality that is affecting everything and everyone on Earth. It's, it's likely that the natural reservoir host of a whole bunch of uh, nasty viruses that can make us sick uh, is one bat species or another. We, we published a paper a couple years ago that basically showed that the way bats behave in the forest, they tend to form small groups that intermix with each other. So a colony of bats might be spread among four or five trees on a given day but they switch trees every couple of days. They might use 50 trees over the course of a year. Um, and as they switch, they maintain social relationships with lots of different individuals throughout all those different trees. If you go in and cut that forest down and put up a hog barn or a livestock barn, and your bats leave those many different trees and fly into your hog barn where they can all interact with every other individual in their colony every day, uh, we modeled the implications for the potential proliferation of a new virus in that colony, and turns out it reaches very high levels much more quickly, as you'd expect. That's Dr. Craig Willis, explaining why providing space to allow for bats to be healthy, do what they normally do without interference, is critical to help us avoid the next outbreak. We've been able to sort of show that empirically, the best conservation approach is to leave the forest alone and let bats behave normally. Their viral loads stay lower, the risk of spillover stays lower. If you do need to put up the hog barn, make sure bats can't get in it and put up alternative habitat that mimics the natural habitat they already had. There are a lot of other reasons why it's important to keep bats healthy. They eat a lot of insects, up to a kilogram of insects every summer. Wills outlines the most obvious benefit of bats results from their role as one of the main predators of night-flying insects. Bats eat an enormous quantity of bugs like moths, beetles, and even mosquitoes. And who doesn't like that in Manitoba? But more importantly, many of the insects that they eat are aggressive pests of crops and forests. In fact, recent studies from other parts of North America have highlighted the importance of insect-eating bats in controlling damage by insects, saving farmers millions of dollars in crop losses and pesticide costs. Bats also pollinate over 700 plants, some of which we use for food and medicine. Wild varieties of many of our most valuable crops rely on bats for their survival. These include bananas, avocados, dates, figs, peaches, mangoes, and many others. All the more reason why it's so important for Willis and his team at the University of Winnipeg to keep researching bats and find ways on how to protect them from the threats they face, and thus make them less of a threat to our collective human health. We're at Richard Lake Mine with researchers from the Willis Bat Lab. Usually when we think of a lab, we think of a sterile, white-walled, indoor environment but when it comes to the Willis Bat Lab, most of the real work is done in the field, in caves and bat hibernation sites called hibernacula. This abandoned mine near Kenora, Ontario is one of them. Five clusters of bats, three bats, 
That's Bat Lab Research Coordinator Kaylee Norquay. Every year, the Bat Lab Research Team conducts a winter survey to get an estimate of the number of hibernating bats in multiple locations in Manitoba and surrounding areas. Out of the six species of bats in Manitoba, three of them spend winters hibernating in the province, while three migrate south for the winter. For the bats that stay, like the common little brown bat, they're at risk of catching a disease which has decimated bat populations across North America, white nose syndrome. White nose syndrome is associated with a cold-loving fungus which grows as a powdery white stuff on the exposed wings, ears, and noses of bats. The fungal growth attacks the bats as they hibernate, disrupting sleep, causing them to fly during the day, depleting fat reserves, and eventually leading to dehydration and death. One of the things that our lab here at UW was able to show in the early phase of the disease was that the fungus causes bats to spend their energy too quickly during hibernation. A little brown bat weighs about 10 grams. So to put that in perspective, that's maybe, think about a couple of loonies. And they store about two grams of stored fat in the fall before hibernation. And they live on that two grams of fat for up to eight months without eating anything. And so they end up burning through that much too quickly um, and they run out of fuel before the end of hibernation. It's not a systemic infection, which means it doesn't attack internal organs. It's a simple skin infection. It just invades the skin. It's still not totally clear why that skin infection makes them use too much energy. But one of the things it makes them do is warm up much too often during the winter. So a, a healthy hibernator bat will spend two to three weeks in a state of what's called torpor uh, during winter. So very low body temperature. Um, so metabolism slows way down and that's what allows them to survive on this little bit of stored fat. But there's something about being a mammal that's incompatible with staying cold for months and months on end. About every three weeks, uh, our little bats they warm up to a normal body temperature. So they shiver and shiver and shiver to get their body temperature back to normal for about a couple of hours. And then they go back into torpor again. And those arousals, they only occur about once a month or every three weeks, but they can use up to 90% of their winter energy stores. What the fungus does is make them do that about three times too often. So if you're doing that much too often, you burn through your fat much too quickly. Uh, one of the most affected species, and until White Nose Syndrome, our most common species in Manitoba is called the little brown bat. Uh, it was probably the most common bat in North America and most widespread until White Nose Syndrome arrived. It's now listed as endangered in Canada entirely because of this disease. While there is no definitive answer of where and when White Nose Syndrome was introduced to North America, Willis and his team were instrumental in figuring out what they were dealing with. At first, Humans did probably spread it around a bit. One of the first caves in New York State affected by the fungus is a tourist cave, a show cave that where people pay admission and go into the cave. You can do hiking tours in this huge cave. Some people have even gotten married in this cave. They do weddings, apparently. This led to the theory that the fungus could have jumped to North American caves on the boots, clothing, or climbing ropes of someone who had been in an infected cave in the eastern part of the world. Since the first documented case in New York State in 2006, White Nose Syndrome has spread quickly across much of eastern and central North America, reaching Manitoba in the past few years. In some caves, mortality rates have reached 100%, and over a million bats have died so far. 
Since its discovery, Dr. Willis and the researchers at the University of Winnipeg Bat Lab have been some of the leading contributors in addressing important questions about the disease. Their research focuses on everything from understanding how the fungus affects bats, to testing possible treatments, to conducting field work to understand whether bats can evolve traits that can help them recover on their own. They have also been active in networking with other bat labs internationally, engaging in educational campaigns, and calling for better added protections of parks and wildlife areas where bats frequent. While efforts have been made to limit the human spread of the fungal spores that cause the disease, it's almost impossible to stop bats themselves from spreading white nose syndrome. Uh, it's tough to curb the spread. That's a really active area of research right now. Can we, uh, can we slow down the spread of the thing? Uh, it's clearly now bats that are spreading it everywhere. Flight is an amazing adaptation that allows them to really get around, and they like to visit lots of different caves, especially before hibernation in the fall. We think that's when most of the, the transmission from site to site probably happens. Bats don't move very often between sites, but when they do, they can easily go you know, 500 kilometers. And so it's a really important way to understand why this fungus can jump so far in a single season. You know, why it has moved 250 kilometers a year, because a single bat can do that. For Norquay, Willis, and other researchers, it is critical to understand where, when, and how bats are moving to curb the spread of the disease. But if that is exceedingly difficult to do, what else can be done? During the early stages of the White Nose Syndrome outbreak, policymakers, the scientific and conservation community focused on chemical or biological treatments for affected bats during hibernation. Five or six years ago, this was really the focus. There are many, many things that will kill our, our fungus in a petri dish in the lab. Many, many of those things are also very toxic to bats or bad for the environment in general. So it's tough to come up with what we call the SOB or the spray on bats approach to come up with something that will work on a wide scale. We have tested one agent in our lab, a bacterium actually that was isolated from a bat species that's not as badly affected uh, from white nose syndrome. And we did find a bit of a, a treatment benefit in the lab that's since been replicated by some of the members of that team from the States in a, a small field experiment. So there's some evidence you can help a few more bats survive using this probiotic or, or bacterium. But there are problems with any kind of spray on bats approach. And one of the huge challenges for studying bats in the first place is knowing where they are in the wintertime. In Eastern North America, there are quite a lot of those places. So there's some promise for those approaches there. But in Western North America, including Western Canada, we don't know about a lot of bats in the West and you can't treat them if you can't find them. As Willis points out, this solution is also very much dependent on knowing where the infected bats are. So the focus then becomes on finding and protecting critical habitats, especially ones that haven't been found yet. We haven't yet uh, been able to clearly define what are the critical summer habitats. And that's one of the things we're really focused on working on in my lab now. We know that a few bats survive the winter with the disease. It's likely that those individuals possess heritable traits that help them survive that they could potentially pass on to their offspring. And so those survivors are incredibly precious. We really want to protect them and we really want to help them reproduce. Our focus is trying to understand those survivors and trying to understand how we can make their lives better in the summer so their pups grow faster, get, get fat and survive 
and those beneficial traits start to proliferate in the population, become more common in the population on the whole. That's actually called, in conservation biology, it's called evolutionary rescue. Despite knowing where many of the winter habitats are in Manitoba and surrounding areas, the Willis Bat Lab are now hoping to record their observations of bats emerging from summer maternity colonies. This could be roosts in trees or in attics of cottages or other buildings. Knowing these locations may help researchers understand the movement of bats and assess impacts of white-nose syndrome on survival and reproduction. If a maternity colony is spotted during the summer months, the Bat Lab research team will likely visit the location at least twice, once for counts and trapping before baby bats or pups have a chance to start flying, and then once again once they've learned to fly. On a catch night, Bat Lab researchers will set up a variety of traps depending on the location. They've sometimes used something called a harp trap, not unlike a volleyball net but with a finer mesh to safely catch bats. They've also used homemade traps for bat houses, made of plastic, mesh, and a whole lot of duct tape. Once a bat is caught, they are measured, swabbed for genetic testing, and some of them are tagged. A pit tag is a transponder that tracks the comings and goings of bats. These are especially useful for researchers like Kaylee Norquay. Basically, we put little microchips in them, put scanners at the entrances of caves, and then I did some work on the phenology of bats. And so the time of when they went into hibernation and when they came out of hibernation. Kaylee Norquay has been working in the Bat Lab since 2008. Her research focuses on the hibernation phenology and long-distance movements of little brown bats, concentrating on modeled survival estimates for bats with white-nose syndrome. Tagging and analyzing bats is key to curbing the spread of white-nose syndrome, and then Manitoba may be one of the best places to do this kind of research in Canada. While the discovery of summer habitats can sometimes be elusive, knowing the whereabouts of underground caves or abandoned mines where bats hibernate itself is a rarity and a tremendous benefit to the Bat Lab team. The hardest part is usually getting there. What a beautiful day. Yeah. It's like awesome everything. Oh, it's lovely. Kaylee Norquay's current role as Bat Lab research coordinator involves organizing research trips into caves in and around Manitoba. These locations can be a challenge to get to, especially in Manitoba winters. In the past month, we've visited five different cave sites and swabbed 15 bats at each site where we could find 15 bats for uh, their microbiome. So we're looking at what microorganisms are on their wings or on their bodies and um, also in the cave and trying to figure out how that changes before and after whiteness syndrome has been in the cave. Manitoba's Interlake region is home to several large bat hibernacula. This morning, the Bat Lab team are traveling to a site in Lake St. George Ecological Reserve near Fisher River Cree Nation. We're here today at St. George Bat Cave, just getting ready to go inside. Discovered in 1987, the St. George Caves are the largest hibernaculum in the province and once estimated to be home to as many as 10,000 little brown bats. It is also the site of the first evidence of white-nose syndrome in Manitoba, a discovery Kaylee Norquay witnessed firsthand. Uh, the last time I was here was in 2018, so I'm actually a little bit nervous to go in again because when we were here, we discovered white-nose syndrome in this cave and there were lots of sick bats and dying bats and bats that were dead on the ground. It was a really hard thing to see. And so I'm hoping this year um, that we don't see that type of mass mortality and that the bats that are here are now resistant to white-nose syndrome, but I am a little bit apprehensive.
The Bad Lab team includes a number of researchers from Manitoba and around the world, including Nicole Dorville from Singapore, who further explains why the winter is the best time for surveying bat populations. Uh, we do the counts during winter because the bats are hibernating at this point, and that means they're pretty much stationary. Um, so it's easier for us to get a more accurate count of how many bats there are in this cave rather than in the spring when they're flying around. There are many reasons to research bats in Manitoba. Not only does the province have an abundance of locations to study bats and the bat lab itself, it also has one of the leading authorities on bat research in the world, Dr. Craig Willis. Willis's story is similar to many of the bat lab research team. If you ask them what got them into this kind of research in the first place, some of them would say it's their love of studying animals in the field. It was halfway between my second and third year and uh, managed to get into a field course uh, as part of the Ontario Field School program that was taught by three amazing professors that I'm still in close contact with and friends with on bats and nocturnal birds. And that was the turning point of my career. I didn't know I was going to work on bats forever after that course, but I knew I was going to be a field biologist for sure. That's what I wanted to do. I got interested in neuroscience as an undergrad student um, from the undergrad research project I did in my fourth year. Um, and I had a chance to do a cool neuroscience project in the vet college at Guelph. So I did switch gears a little bit. I always knew I'd come back to field biology and animal behavior. My field work was in a place called the Cypress Hills of Saskatchewan. Uh, and so I worked on, on bats, uh, social behavior and physiology of bats in what's a pretty tough place to make a living if you're an insect-eating animal. Uh, one of the things that struck me from my experience uh, working with uh, neuroscientists, and this may have changed, folks might tend to think about their study animals or their patients, in the case of working in a vet college, kind of like machines, and you're trying to get your machine to work properly. The thing that I took away from my undergraduate experience in biology and my field course uh, experience and other field experience um, and someone interested in evolution is thinking about our study animals in the context of their evolutionary history. People that study animal behavior are really sort of focused on this and it comes back to uh, one of the, really the founders of the study of animal behavior, a guy called Nico Tinbergen, who came up with, and we divide them into two categories of proximate questions. That's basically questions about how the animal works and ultimate questions, questions about the evolutionary history. I think animal behavior is a great model for how to think about the traits of organisms in nature and how they're influenced by history and natural selection. This approach to studying the behavioral changes in bats may be the key to finding solutions for their survival. They may, you know, have more arsenal in their DNA that we, you know, that we don't realize is there, you know. Sometimes certain genes get turned on or turned off or behaviors change. So for example, there's one theory that bats in Europe, which has the fungus, but bats don't die there in high numbers, may have behavioral adaptations, for example, like they don't cluster together in as large of groups. And so one of the things that we are doing that's just really easy from the photos that we take is just seeing if that clustering behavior changes over time. I think with every bit of data that we're gathering, we're just trying to look at it from as many angles as possible. Back at Lake St. George, Kaylee Norquay and the Bat Lab research team have just emerged from the cave with some promising news. We're out of the cave now. We're just packing up the car. It went really well. 
Inside the cave, we didn't see any sick bats. All of them seem to be doing quite well, but there were many fewer than the last time I was here. So the last time I was here in the winter of 2017, 2018, the bats were very, very sick. There were thousands of them, but there were hundreds of dead ones. And the ones that were hibernating looked really ill. You could see them struggling to breathe, um, trying to fly, falling on the ground. Today, even though there are many fewer bats, we'll count them this week and find out how many. All of them looked really great, which was such a relief. Uh, we got all the samples we needed. Yeah, it was a good day. While the observations of the Bat Lab team are encouraging, this is just the first step in determining whether or not the little brown bat population may stabilize. How the recent dramatic population fluctuation of bats may affect the ecosystem overall is still unknown. That's not all. You may be interested to know that white-nose syndrome is not the only major threat facing bats at this time. While hibernating bats fight for their survival against white-nose syndrome, migratory bats have a whole other problem to contend with. In fact, when Kaylee Norquay started in the bat lab, wind turbines were the main culprit in the decline of bat populations. So yeah, so part of my job was to get up at the sunrise every morning and walk around the turbine in a circle um, for five or six hours and pick up any dead bats that we found. We'd probably pick up like somewhere from like three to six a day, so it didn't seem like a lot, but that, it, that is a lot for an animal that only reproduces, you know, one pup a year. No one knows exactly why bats are attracted to wind turbines, but evidence suggests that they may seek out tall structures during certain times of the year. There's a few different hypotheses, and I'm not sure if it's totally clear. So one is just they're really long-distance migrators, and potentially a very tall structure on the horizon historically would have been indication of a forest or somewhere safe to go. So potentially they're attracted to really tall structures because of this. Another hypothesis is that they're attracted to really tall structures as a place to meet for mating. Unlike white-nose syndrome, when it comes to wind turbine-related deaths, there are some concrete solutions. However, some wind farm companies are reluctant to implement them. The mortality is concentrated during a short time of year, only a couple of months. And the bats also don't like to fly on the windiest nights. They like to fly in conditions, often when the turbines aren't making any money at all, or maybe only a very little bit of money. And so we could eliminate the problem almost entirely if we just shut off wind turbines at night during August and September. Uh, for a range of economic reasons, the, it's not viable, apparently, for the companies to do uh, that kind of level of mitigation. So there's a bunch of work underway to try and figure out uh, what kind of adjustments to what's called the cut-in speed we can make. So you can stop the turbines from spinning at low wind speeds uh, when they're only spinning slowly and not generating very much electricity, if any. That can massively reduce mortality. It doesn't fix the problem, but it can reduce it a whole lot. In this past year, Ontario's environment minister cancelled a $200 million wind farm south of Ottawa, citing its impact on the bat population. This prompted a legal battle between the province of Ontario and the Nation Rise Wind Farm over the future of the project. This case highlights the complexity of issues surrounding conservation and renewable energy sources, especially in the context of climate change. 
However, Willis contends that protecting bat populations is important and needs to be considered when it comes to building any mega project. Not only because of the vital role bats play in our ecosystem, but in terms of our own interest in maintaining our health across the globe. Uh, the research we do on bats, which are economically and ecologically important animals, is probably going to save some people a whole lot of money. Um, and it could become important for public health um, and in that sense help make people's lives better. For years, scientists have focused on ways on how to mitigate the spread of bat-related outbreaks of diseases like COVID-19. This includes everything from tracing a virus back to its origin, determining high-risk groups in certain mammals prone to infection, and developing better diagnostic testing. While knowing these things can allow health experts to put more control measures in place, scientists agree that placing an emphasis on some degree of conservation as to not disturb bat habitats can be vital as the risk of zoonotic infections or the transference of the virus from bats to humans is highest when there is increased contact. For Willis, the easiest way to avoid outbreaks in the future, human and bat alike, is to help foster a healthy bat population by preserving wild habitats. In that respect, the Willis Bat Lab have been able to contribute greatly to research that is helping save the bats. We're trying to solve a conservation problem that's impacting an endangered species. And so the law of Canada says that we have to try and solve this problem. We've got an endangered species and the objective of our government and our society is, like other endangered species, to try and improve outcomes for that species. The Willis Bat Lab is also developing innovative conservation tools. Uh, what we've been trying to do uh, is make commercially available bat houses even better for bats. We know that uh, one of the reasons that mother bats form colonies in the summertime is to keep it warm. They like it cold but not freezing in winter. They like it hot, hot, hot in the summer. 30 plus degrees as long as possible throughout the day is ideal for a group of mother bats all trying to get their pups to grow fast. So what we've been trying to do is heat up bat boxes. Uh, we've got an experiment going where we've got 20 control boxes at a group of colonies where we know there are already bats. We set out new boxes and then we have 20 heated boxes uh, where we've warmed up the temperature and insulated the box. We're looking at rates of occupation, how many bats are in the boxes of each type. That's a real focus of what we want to do. Understand survivors, what's different about the bats that are still here, and what can we do to make the world a little easier for them. Willis's advice on ways you can do your part to help save the bats is by preserving and respecting bat habitats installing bat boxes, and reporting colonies and bat sightings to batwatch.ca. Batwatch is a bit of a bigger initiative where uh, they provide a platform for citizens that have bat colonies on their properties or know of a bat colony in a building uh, to first report the locations of those colonies, which is incredibly useful information for us, but also to provide even better data and count the number of bats in the colony. And this is actually a really cool, fun thing that the average person can do. If you know where a bat colony is, go out just before sunset with a, a pen and paper, a lawn chair, and your favorite cold drink, and sit in a spot where you can backlight the emerging bats against the dusk sky. So you want to be able to see the silhouettes of bats as they come out of the hole in the building or the tree, and then simply take a count. 
Uh, at first, it was a challenge to convince folks to do this, and everyone's busy. And But I th once people have started to realize what a cool thing this is to see at dusk um, and how many bats they might have in their colony from 30 to 40 to hundreds in some cases, we now have folks giving us weekly counts all summer, which is amazing data for us, gives us great population information, gives us great information on phenology or the timing of important life cycle events, when are the bats returning in the spring, uh, really incredibly useful information. So as you've heard, the answer to the research question, how do we stop the spread of white nose syndrome in bats, isn't just one thing. It's a combination of many things, from the spray on bat approach, to swabbing and testing hibernacula, from studying the hibernation phenology of bats. But most notably, it's the conservation and protection of wildlife habitat that allows the bats time to rescue themselves from this disease. Despite the serious crises facing bats today, Dr. Willis, Kaylee Norquay, and the rest of the Bat Lab team are determined to keep searching for answers while studying one of the most unique mammals in the world. Oh, it's still incredibly exciting when you when you discover something that surprises you that no one's you know no one's ever discovered before. Especially when you get to do it with smart students who are equally excited. You've been listening to Research Question. Research Question is recorded at the Oral History Center at the University of Winnipeg. The University of Winnipeg is located on Treaty One territory, the heartland of the Métis people. Written and produced by Kent Davies. Interviews with Dr. Craig Willis and Kaylee Norquay. Field recordings by Kaylee Norquay. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. For more information on the Willis Bat Lab and how you can get involved with BatWatch, go to willisbatlab.org. For more UWinnipeg research, go to uwinnipeg.ca research. For more information on the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center and the work that we do, go to oralhistorycenter.ca. Thanks for listening. <laughs>